Uh, I think that it is fair to say that our field right now is very much centered on the question of what happens when now we're interacting with artificial intelligence. And I was very inspired by the question, but from the perspective of, well, if I have a virtual assistant or a virtual ro or a robot, or I'm playing a video game and I'm interacting with an artificial character, uh, what does it take for me to be a bad person towards it? Under what circumstances would I be pro-social to an AI? Under what circumstances would I let my inner, the darkest uh, side of me let go and perhaps uh, be mean to that AI or even go to torture it if it did something that I was displeased with? Hello world, this is SpartaCast. Hello and welcome to SpartyCast. I'm Robbie, director of the lab and host of the podcast. And we're in the Sparty lab and now we have a banner. It's amazing. So happy. It feels, it feels real. Though the banner doesn't appear in this episode. Technical difficulties, have to do a little time travel and recording this, uh, this bumper file. But anyway, our guest today is Dr. Jorge Pena. He's an associate professor at UC Davis in the Department of Communication. And we talk about Westworld, Black Mirror, and multiple video games that relate to Dr. Pena's research. He, he knows his games. We know each other from the game study division at ICA, the International Communication Association. We talk about his experiment, a virtual recreation of the Stanley Milgram shock experiments, which you may know from learning about ethics in research was a pretty controversial study in which people shocked uh, or thought they were shocking other participants up until the point of death. Uh, Dr. Pena recreated this study in virtual reality, looking at how the roles that people play influence how they shocked the virtual um, other participant. We also talked about his research on avatar identification and acceptance of outgroup members, of course, very relevant to our current political, our, our polarized political dynamics that are exacerbated by news media, but also potentially influenced through other forms of new media interactions, such as avatar use and video games. And of course, we talk about the theoretical underpinnings of the Proteus effect. If you listen to this podcast, you know, I love this phenomenon. I think it's super interesting. I've done many studies on it myself. And Jorge and I have worked together sometimes as reviewers of each other's papers or working on theory pieces about the Proteus effect and, and related phenomenon. So it was really, or it is really fun to delve into this topic with him because he's clearly an expert and we don't always see things exactly the same but um, but we have complementary understandings of the phenomenon. And yeah, of course, we also brainstorm on new ideas and concepts, connections to uh, notions of the metaverse or cross-platform avatars. I definitely want to collaborate with Dr. Pena even more than I already did after this conversation. I have such great respect for his work. He's pushing the boundaries of our field and he doesn't just accept the way that um, certain norms have been developed in our field. He's, he's a, a very creative researcher and, and a fun human to hang out with. So I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I hope you also find it relevant to your own work or play or everything in between. Thanks for watching and listening. Hello and welcome, Jorge Pena. Thank you so much for joining the SpartyCast. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. What a pleasure. It is a pleasure. We've been friends for a long time. I've known your research uh, for a longer time. And we've reviewed each other's papers on occasion. Afterwards, we find out and we're like, oh, wow, that was a really fun one to read. Um, <laughs> maintained good, good, good vibes over the years. And so it's, it's cool to have you on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember when we first met at ICA years ago when Dimitri introduced us way back when and it's always been good to run into you and learn from your research. Absolutely. So um, so let's talk about your research, but let's try to connect it to some sci-fi uh, themes. You mentioned Westworld is one 
that you like and, and think about Ooh. with respect to a Milgram experiment you did. So can you tell us about that one? Yeah, yeah a little bit of context with that. I, I, I think that nowadays uh, communication is very much interested in AI. And we see many of our colleagues looking at different ways in which uh, people are exposed to AIs in terms of like information that is curated by AIs or how they can be used to enhance health outcomes. And so uh, I think that it is fair to say that our field right now is very much centered on the question of what happens when now we're interacting with artificial intelligence. And I was very inspired by the question, but from the perspective of, well, if I have a virtual assistant or a virtual ro or a robot, or I'm playing a video game and I'm interacting with an artificial character, uh, what does it take for me to be a bad person towards it? Under what circumstances would I be pro-social to an AI? Under what circumstances would I let my inner, the darkest uh, side of me let go and perhaps uh, uh, be mean to that AI or even go to torture it if it did something that I was displeased with? And I think that that was where I was coming from on the question of what does it take uh, for us humans to be pro-social or anti-social to a non-sentient being? And I was inspired by uh, science fiction, of course. You, uh, Westward in particular, I thought was a good example. Uh, this is one episode where I think the character Will arrives to Westworld and he's presented with different outfits for him to wear. And some of them are like white hat, black hat. This would take uh, uh, some of us to do some ideas of the produce effect on this idea that you might uh, be replicating some of the behaviors and thought patterns of uh, an avatar stereotype that is given to you. So I thought that question to be very provoking uh, in terms of Westworld. Uh, many of us have seen it, some of us maybe don't, but essentially like a theme park uh, uh, that is uh, connected to the Wild West and there people would be whoever they wanted to be. So you wanted to be a scoundrel in the Wild West or you wanted to be a white hat hero or something else in between, you could be that person. So when granting people freedom to fully interact with an AI and do whatever you wanted to it, uh, under what circumstances would people be uh, more pro-social or anti-social? And that was a general question and I think that science fiction uh, takes us there. But when thinking about how to translate it to a research procedure, I was very interested in some of the work by Stanley Milgram uh, in connection to obedience to authority, where he had people interact with a uh, uh, learner Learner, it was actually so this a, was, an actor. This was back in the, the late 40s, right? Uh, Sometimes in the 40s or 50s, if my memory serves me well. But what's really interesting is that Milgram was a bit of an artist. So if you search online, there's movies and photos. Like he documented his experiments a lot. And I highly recommend us researchers to do the same. Like we have cameras nowadays in our phones. So I'm always taking photos around the lab of any sort of procedure or manipulation or videos. And they're really useful. I end up using some of them in my own papers later on without me knowing at the time that they could have even been used to begin with. So Milgram has uh, some uh, films about what he did there. So we were able to replicate some of the procedure and we took some the Milgram uh, 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 shock machine and put it within an environment that was based on the Fallout 4 engine. So essentially we created a lab environment using Fallout 4, a little bit like a quest, if you will, in which you are presented with an AI. And that AI character is presented as sentient or non-sentient to you. And participants were randomly assigned to meet this AI partner presented as sentient or non-sentient. Can I pause us for one sec? So, um, sure. so just for context for people who don't know Milgram, because there might be undergrads um, who've just heard of the term. So the Milgram experiments, I'm sure he did many, but this is what he's famous or infamous for. After yeah. World War II, he wanted to study uh, obedience to authority, like you said. And so he set people up in a lab where they thought they were shocking another participant. And he wanted to know how high are they going to shock the participant? And if I remember correctly, he started doing this in uh, New Haven, Connecticut at Yale. Um, and then his plan was to go to Germany because he thought, okay, the Nazis committed these atrocities during World War II. Maybe the uh, German population is just more susceptible to influence from authority. And what he found was no. It, everyone was there. People were so surprisingly um, susceptible. And, and so if you, if you tell someone shock 
shock the other person more and more and more, many people will shock or think they're shocking that person to a point where they kill them. And we all often learn about this uh, when we're learning what not to do in research because those participants were somewhat traumatized afterwards, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a very good context for the study. And it, it needs to be said that the idea of taking the medium experiment to virtual reality is not new. Mel Slater did it years ago, and he was very interested in looking at people's uh, physiological reactions to the pain of an agent that was being shocked. So this has been done in the past, but we're more interested in whether people would go all the way and use, uh, uh, using this uh, idea that we often see in communication research of using virtual environments as a laboratory to study the human condition. So it is unethical to do this nowadays, but it's also fair to say that us gamers many times are given quests in which we can do whatever we want, like take a Paragon route or more of a Renegade route and sometimes something else in between. And those are very like stark, uh, choices. Some games go even further uh, than, uh, than that in terms of the consequences of uh, people's actions and the freedom that is given to them. Uh, so I think that it's interesting uh, taking this uh, idea to an environment where it's uh, more ethical to test for these uh, traditional questions about obedience to authority and bring in the layers uh, nowadays of uh, interaction with artificially uh, intelligence um, embodiment in virtual environments and the plasticity that uh, playing a video game or being a virtual environment allows for people to have in terms of their de decisions when encountering uh, an AI character. And so the manipulation in the study is whether or not they think the AI is sentient. It was sentient, non-sentient AI. And before the participants interacted with the, um, uh, with the AI, we have them randomly assigned to a virtual museum where they were exposed to heroes, anti-heroes, or villains. And then the participants customized a character to look like themselves as if they were a hero exemplar or an anti-hero exemplar or a villain exemplar. And we had tested uh, uh, heroes like uh, Wonder Woman and Superman, which have appeared in the literature. Uh, other anti-heroes that have appeared in the literature, uh, for example, are the Joker. Uh, we also had the Emperor from Star Wars. Uh, and in the anti-hero side, we had uh, Catwoman and we had uh, Han Solo. So the participants would, uh, and we actually gave them the assets. So participants were not only asked to make a character, they, they read a bio of what being a hero means to standardize people's cognitions or same with the anti-hero, same from the villain. And we took this from uh, the uh, scripts from previous studies, same as the exemplars. And then the participants customized a character like themselves as a hero in one condition or each participant of course went, uh, went through the study only once. So another participant might have customized a character like themselves as an anti-hero or themselves as a villain. And what we find here is, uh, is a couple of things. First, going back to Milgram, do people obey to authority? Oh yeah, they do. We got some, uh, about 87% of our participants shocked all the way, which is starkly similar to, if you look at meta-analysis of other studies that have done Milgram, uh, again, uh, more recent uh, replications and Milgram's own data, ours is very similar. The participants went all the way. And that's, uh, that's interesting because if 80% went all the way, then 20% are not going all the way. And it means that kind of the proportion of people who don't want to kill the AI because they think it's sentient is the same proportion as the, who the, those who don't want to kill a human. In other well, words, the sentence like, of the eye didn't didn't quite affect the the shocking behavior of the oh, participants. But uh, as a general trend, they the majority of them shocked to the degree similar to Milgram. Oh, also, only like one or two bowed out after four up to eight trials. Uh, I don't remember how many there there is uh, eighteen or thirty. I'll have to look back at the literature, but it's quite a few. Yeah. actually so it's not like a really like mild uh, uh voltage and then they start like uh, at increments mm -hmm. uh so the majority of them went all the way and then i we had an awareness check that asked the participants do you know about the what the purpose of the experiment was and and some of them and not a minority like a, a percentage because they're coming from psychology said yeah it's a replication of the milgram experiment and i took them out of the data and it's the same findings by participants okay. essentially that knew about the experiment, shocked and taking them out, still 
give me the effect of uh, uh, the participants shogging as much as the Milgram participants and the effects of avatars and, and the sentience of the AI that I will talk about in a minute that there's some of them, but, but uh, at different degrees. Uh, for example, the participants that uh, embodied heroes uh, uh, customized themselves as a hero. They shock less uh, in comparison to the ones that had the villain uh, customization. Do you remember about like if it's eighty percent in on average, then was hero like fifty percent or, or maybe you don't know? Uh, I don't quite remember. These are in average. They just did fewer trials. Yeah, I see. Yeah, okay. they just did. They just did fewer of the of the of the they, shops. They stopped earlier. They um, stopped earlier. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. avatar type made a difference. Customizing made a difference. All right, interesting. Uh, so back to Westworld. So we. <laughs> Being the blackhead character actually does make you less likely to, to a degree, significantly so, to uh, shock an AI character, but still the majority of the participants did it, but it decreased that tendency for sure in comparison uh, to the participants that had the, the villain characters. And uh, we, we also found that the participants identified more with their characters when the AI was presented as non-sentient. So identification was much easier. It, it, my, my explanation for that is that uh, everybody shocked, so it was easier for the participants to rationalize identification with the character when they were shocking, like something that didn't have a I see. sentience. So, so sentience does have an effect, but not on how much you shock them, um, but it has an effect on maybe how much you disassociate yourself from that experience. Pretty much. And, and uh, we measured sh shame and guilt because I was interested in what people would be uh, uh, in terms of well, well, their more reaction to the whole situation uh, and whether there would be uh, an effect associated to that. Uh, there isn't that much movement there. It still feel, I still feel that the participants treat as a virtual experience. So there are some fluctuations, but at the same time, not uh, as much variance as I, as I would have uh, expected, but still we get a reliable effect that the participants that had the anti-hero character that shocked a sentient AI experienced the most guilt out of any other condition in any of the combinations there. And uh, uh, my explanation for that is that the anti-heroes were very much like follow your own way, don't go with authority, this Han Solo, Catwoman, and they're sentient, they're, you know, shocking. Our character that is presented as sentient. And actually, when in the sentient condition, it shows sentient. So in the non-sentient, the character, when you shock it, did no noise, but in the sentient, each added it gradual increment started like doing so sounds that were akin to the Milgram experiment. And we watched the tapes and we actually got the dialogues and we started like replicating that at every shot. So we recorded that too. So you, you use real human screams. Yes. <laughs> that made people guiltier, especially when they were the anti-hero, because there was this signal that they were following the authoritarian message. And so I'm supposed to, but on the other conditions, no effect on guilt. Like my, of course, this is uh, this is the unexpected finding. Uh, the the prediction would have been that when you are the hero, you would experience more guilt because you are this paragon of uh, authority. But maybe it doesn't work that way. Uh, maybe when you're the hero, identification you you want to identify more, and so um, with. Like you said, the sentient avatars, you don't identify as much, so then you don't feel guilty. But with the non-sentient avatars, you're not hearing the feedback. And so even though you're identifying, it's not increasing your guilt. Whereas I think so too. I'm reminded of games like how oh, Spec Ops, The Line, I think that's separating yourself from the harm that you're causing somehow helps with the identification with your own role. And that could be, I don't want to speculate, maybe in, in some type of professions, but uh, definitely in, in this uh, game, virtual environment. I think it speaks to the most controversial issue in game studies, which is violence effects of gaming. And the reason that most of the research, uh, this is my kind of take on it, um, most of the research does not find that playing violent games leads to violent actions or aggressive actions is because people disassociate in the same way as when you watch a TV show with criminals or read a book, you, you get entertained by the story, but you don't want to identify with the character when they're doing horrible things. And this study gets at that, that phenomenon, I think, in a way that's 
a little closer to, uh, I guess, a good test of this hypothesis. I'd love to do more research on this, though it's not really my area, where like, if we manipulate identification somehow, will that mm -hmm. influence the, the extent to which people act aggressively after, um, and after playing a violent game? And then if we, if we can reverse engineer that and look at how much people actually identify with their characters in violent games, we'll find that they, they identify less when they're playing a violent game and, and thus we wouldn't worry so much. But then, oh, here's, here's maybe a controversial hypothesis. If we can figure out somehow through nonverbals who is really identifying with their characters, like the people who are off the charts, maybe they're yeah. at slightly higher risk for committing some of the kind of heinous violent acts that we've seen in this country, you know, mass shootings and whatnot. I mean, certainly- that, That's an interesting uh, point. Maybe as, I, I'm thinking a little bit almost like, uh, since we started with science fiction, a little bit like knowing who identifies and has a reaction to those uh, scenes of violence in a way that you wouldn't perhaps expect uh, enjoying it as a predictor for, uh, for something else that takes us to a uh, kind of, a min uh, is it minority report? Yeah, kind exactly. of future where you can like, like precog, uh, precog people's uh, absolutely based on their media use. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I appreciate that point that you're making. I, I gotta say, I, since we uh, often we read each other's work and we get often to review it, but as as a reviewer comment, I, I really appreciated this idea of like uh, looking at how the the actions of the character make people identify more or less with their uh, with their avatars and, and I think that there's something there in terms of how we think about identification we getting more into that literature and this idea of uh, more dyadic perceptions about a character and more monadic perceptions and I tend to follow on the dyadic it's an object it's a prime it's out there and when you, and, and when so you my data is hmm? and when you say you fall on that you mean when you play personally or you think most people um, feel that way I mean, I've, I've gone through both. I think that it's not like an either or. It's more like in my own data, I sometimes uh, see that the participants see that uh, in one study where they had leader avatars, for example, they attribute more leadership to their avatar, but not to themselves. And I think that in some situations, the participants might be looking at their character and saying, and this is going up, uh, these are straight up, Dorf Silverman prediction coming from theory about morality and entertainment that if the character uh, performs heinous acts, then you might be more likely to look at it as if it was a negative entity, uh, but you're more likely to identify with it and will wish well for a character when they are behave morally. So I think this is very congruent with some of those uh, dynamics. So uh, all, all I'm saying here is that it is more likely that we find this dyadic kind of uh, perception and possible identification with characters of, I like it to a degree, but I'm still an asshole. It's not me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's still not me. It's not me. It's all right. I like it, but it's not me. So it's a soprano kind of situation as opposed to it being me. And I think that the, morale, the, the morality of the character and particularly the acts that you carry out through mm -hmm. that vessel uh, uh, might affect that process. So here's the study design. We bring people into the lab. We say, you're gonna be playing a game where you run around killing sentient AI. Um, and they all look like children. Maybe that's, that's too much, but um, you know, you're, like, like you're going to be this kind of criminal. That's the, that's the narrative. You're gonna be committing violent acts with no remorse in order to win the game. Now customize an avatar. And we don't, we say you can, you can make it like yourself or you don't have to make it like yourself. Just make it however you want. And then, I mean, we could manipulate that also, um, but I, I, I would prefer to measure it because afterwards we can ask how, how much did it resemble yourself and mm. how much did you enjoy the game? And then we give them some sort of aggression measure. How aggressive are you right now? You know, the chocolate or chili sauce test or maybe shock, sound, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, my hypothesis is that the people who knowingly went into the game narrative um, with an avatar that resembled themselves are more likely to be aggressive after the game. Not because the game caused them necessarily to be aggressive, but because they kind of have a penchant for it. And so they see themselves in that narrative. And if that's supported, then 
this is like super 1984 big brother but what if we we could do some measure of games out in the world that are highly highly violent and we look at the people who are making the characters more or less like themselves somehow through just similarity with their faces then then yeah that gets into the precog thing it could be could be a way to predict behaviors or at least identify risk factors I'm I'm very much interested in uh, going deeper into um, science fiction and its connection to uh, avatar research. Um, into the, this uh, comment that you made about uh, the use of people's faces and uh, uh, Jesse Fox and Jay Balinson and Grace Ann have done a lot of uh, work on that particular sphere of taking the participants' uh, uh, face. Uh, and graphically onto an avatar. And I wonder if I would, uh, I would present you with the opposite prediction to, to what you said, if you will. Uh, because I'm very much interested in that manipulation, but not in the context that uh, those researchers are using it, but more in the context of like when you're encountering an outgroup member and it is your face that you see in the avatar that you're embodying. And I'm being very interested in this idea of, uh, of course, uh, this has a lot of uh, pedigree, I suppose, in computer-made communication, the idea of uh, de-individuation and anonymity. And uh, when you are identifiable to an audience, which may well happen when an avatar is wearing your face, and there is indeed an audience where people think that they're being recordable, chances are that they're less aggressive towards someone else uh, because they feel more identifiable. And that can be, of course, manipulated by having uh, grafting the participant's face on, onto their avatar or them customizing it. But uh, I think that in addition to manipulating that, it would be neat and I've been trying to do that, I recently published a study on that, looking at when people felt more identifiable in a virtual environment, uh, when they encounter an output member, it's a paper with Grace Wolf and Magdalena Wojciechak in social media and society, in which we found that when the participants were using avatars that were uh, had their own, uh, uh, more similar to themselves, because the participants that customize a character, when they felt more identifiable, they were more likely to accept an outgroup member. And this goes back to some of the uh, side uh, hypothesis in terms of ident not 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 only the the side of side I suppose the individual but the uh, identifiability what happens when you're identifiable to an in-group audience and you want to fit in maybe maybe if the in-group audience it's negative or or or, or anti the outgroup then maybe the identifiability would work in different ways. But going back to your point, I think that it's interesting that we're thinking about in the future, which is now essentially we can have our face onto an avatar through customization or through photographic means. And, and I'm interested in how that would affect not only identification, but identifiability now that it's it's you in the spotlight now. It's not the absolutely. anonymous user that I used to be in the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, absolutely. I think... Um... I think this idea of the metaverse. Have you have you read much about this recently, or you've heard of it, of course? Uh, I mean, I, I watch Marvel stuff, and I finished Loki. Would that would that qualify? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the the metaverse right now is kind of this buzzword for the interconnected virtual worlds where we can kind of take the same assets from one space to another. So imagine I can have the same avatar in Fortnite or in this Zoom call or in my work meetings. Um, and did you hear about Facebook Horizons recently? No, no. So um, Facebook Horizons Workspace, they just launched this product, which is similar to this other product called Immersed VR, where you're, you're in the Oculus and, or you know any headset with Immersed VR, and you can see your keyboard, you can type, but you see, and you also see your computer screens but you can have as many screens as you want. They're, they're virtual. And you can bring people in, you can interact with three-dimensional objects. So it's a, it's a neat idea to improve productivity. Of course, they're going in the direction of augmented reality as you'd expect, because yeah. people don't necessarily like to be uh, cut off in VR. Yeah. Um, but, but now imagine through NFTs and, and blockchain technologies in general, you can take the same digital assets across from like I could just I could be in this shirt and the, this avatar all day long. I, I'm here and then I'm with uh, my students in class uh, or maybe I change quickly because I can. Um, but I also carry along my reputation score. So I'm de-individuated. 
um, or no, sorry, I'm, I'm individuated on all of these platforms. Yeah. So I'm less likely to be a jerk on Reddit because on Fortnite, I've had to put in all this information about myself. So I kind of feel like the same person. Do you think that's a, is an exciting area of research or what? What, what do you think? I think it is. I think that uh, there's uh, been a, a push that uh, we all know towards identifiability in terms of how, uh, signing up uh, in social media with your real name or making yourself a brand, branding. Uh, uh, and the, the way that we use social media is very much towards this idea of an identity. And, and I think that what you mentioned is very congruent with uh, a passport in a way. Like when we move from country to country, we need a document that, you know, signals who we are and we use that as our identifier and I think that the, the, the metaphor of an avatar or identity that moves through different platforms and it's Ravi but you can like customize it and, and dress it for the occasion but it's still so, sort of some sort of moving entity makes a lot of sense with the, the way that we uh, use technology and we might have uh, using it particularly in contexts that are more public like I can definitely see not all of the users being interested in this but if you work at a company or you're an academic or you're presenting information to others or bring them into a particular vision uh, or way of looking at things uh, discussing projects reaching agreement etc uh, i think that there, there's a lot of uh, value to that particular technology uh, going a little bit back to video games and, and metaverses uh, there's this uh, documentary about the game Dishonored 2. I don't know if you ever played any of the Dishonored games. They're incredible. They're like just like pieces of art. Uh, the, I, I don't want to spoil them to you, but you, you kind of like teleport. You find, it's like thief, the thief games. You can like sneak in or murder anybody, first sure. person kind of thing. And this is one mansion level that you are in visiting the mansion in the future, and the, but you can teleport through wormholes throughout the mansion. And essentially, the designers had a little bit of a metaverse because they needed the player to be able to move from one space to the other seamlessly in the past and the future. So essentially, they had two mansions stack up. So the player is moving from one to the other across platforms because that is the easy solution that they found to how you build a metaverse. Metaverse, metaverse, which is very congruent with how uh, we are imagining metaverse in terms of like this stack up universe. They had to like build it because that's actually how it worked best to solve the problem. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Almost yeah. as a proof of concept. Yeah. The, the mechanics of oh. making these uh, universes interoperable seem quite complicated at this point. Um, <laughs> and I, I feel like we're at the early stages of the internet where, you know, connecting computers together was, was something pretty new. Um, and now it's connecting virtual worlds together also seems like a, a challenge, but through standards of interoperability, we'll get there and, and through kind of creative um, engineering solutions. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the, something interesting about the pandemic is that it has brought, uh, brought back uh, the human and the technology element even more so to the forefront uh, when connecting with uh, others or working from home or, uh, uh, online dating, texting, playing video games. I, I had stopped playing video games for almost a year and been dedicated to music, but uh, I found a few inspiring games out there. Dishonored being one of them. Um, also chancing to, ah, what's the one that I'm thinking of? It's like a Russian game. Metro, Metro, the last Metro game, last line or something like that. Okay. Yeah, very, very interesting stuff. But, uh, but I think that the technology has uh, become uh, back to the forefront, not only in terms of like how we use it to connect to others and work, which is uh, uh, some of the implications I think that you bring in with this metaverse and moving your identity across, but also just going back to art, uh, music, entertainment, and games as a way of uh, nurturing ourselves and having those vicarious experiences where we're not able to, to travel. Exactly. Or to exactly. connect, yeah. I, I want to ask you a question. Where, where are you working on? What are you excited about? Oh, what yeah. Is your juices flow in terms of sure. uh, technology, society, art, research? Where's your, where's your yeah. heart and mind these days? I can tell you I'm super excited about my recent um, AMCOG project, which you know a little bit about. Yes. The Avatar-mediated communication outside of gaming. And it relates to this idea of the metaverse. People are using avatars in Zoom calls, or they will be to a greater extent, I think. Um, and that idea grew a little bit out of this grant proposal, which I just told you we got officially funded 
um, over a million dollars from the NSF, my first NSF grant ever. So I'm stoked about Congratulations. that. Thank you. Thank you. Big so um, the, this came out of some virtual uh, meeting fatigue research, which you've seen this, right? Zoom fatigue. I mean, I lived through it. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, there's debate in our field about whether we actually need a new term for this or new concept. Um, but Jeremy uh, Balenson, who, of course, we've both followed his work, the Proteus effect, he started doing some research on this. And, uh, and, and so I got connected to that. And I was like, wow, this is a really interesting topic. There are many reasons we experience Zoom fatigue, but one of them is because we're always looking at our faces during these meetings. And we found in our study, the more dissatisfied you are with your facial appearance, the more Zoom fatigue you feel. And this oh, explains wow. why women uh, uh, compared to men um, have more Zoom fatigue, about 13% about on average. And this is consistent over like multiple studies now, um, thousands of participants. So, um, and also in our study, we found, I think about an 8% difference between uh, white participants and Asian participants uh, with Asian participants reporting higher Zoom fatigue. So if facial dissatisfaction is one of the mechanisms of this effect, I think an easy solution or at least a viable solution is to have avatars instead of our faces. And I don't think it's just about your facial appearance. I think by having an avatar in place of us, our photorealistic kind of uh, embodied captured self is a way to reduce the stress because we're not we don't have to behave anymore. Like I, I'm, I'm thinking about my hand gestures now. I'm thinking about like, am I smiling? All this stuff. I can just throw the avatar on an algorithm and I can be walking around. I mean, of course I still need a good mic. But I can be walking around and like taking care of my kids or in my pajamas on the top and the bottom. Um, and, and it makes people probably a little more relaxed as they socially interact. And so that's kind of what we want to test in that study. I'm, I'm excited about that. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. The take the face out so you're not like looking at it, you're just looking at an, at an avatar. Is the avatar that you envision gesturing as a person would essentially like mimicking? Sure, they could mimic or I could, I could, have, um, I could have it just like slowly gesture, always look right at the camera. Um, maybe the algorithms will be good enough to know to smile while the other person is talking or nod slightly on occasion. Like all of these things I think improve social interactions. Oh, I have another one for you, though. Actually, this is more theoretically interesting. So uh, you wrote one of the, getting back to the black hat, white hat, you wrote one of the first non-valence and proteus effect. I mean, it was the first non-valence and proteus effect study in which you looked at people in black or white robes, kind of, um, and then KK <laughs> or doctor. And you found uh, more antisocial sentiment when people were wearing the black robes, the KKK clothing. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, of course, we see that in Westworld. We see that in many different media contexts. That's the Proteus effect at, at its core. I've been thinking about whether it's possible to induce the Proteus effect with agents that you interact with as a third party, but then you take control over them. And they're still you? Or they're, they're representing you somehow? At first, or they're like not a... representing you. At first, they're, they're just the agent that you talk to. Um, they, they're an NPC in a game. They're an AI. Maybe you believe they're sentient. Maybe you believe they're not. But then you take control over the agent's manifestation as an avatar. And you go you know, do a game in it or some task. We're calling it the controllable agent paradigm. I, uh, I don't know if you're pretending not to be the reviewer on this paper because um, we have one. I mean, we've presented. I'm, I'm, I'm not. So I can actually give you uh, unbiased advice uh, out of like this community. No, I'm not the reviewer. Yet. Sure, sure. So uh, some feedback, pushback we've gotten is this isn't exactly the Proteus effect. It feels different. Um, because the mechanism is- I got that feedback from another review. It must be the same person. <laughs> you know, it's We saw the customization stuff. Is customization still the purpose effect? I, I, I don't know. Um, if you customize it and then you act in a way that's consistent with those customizations, is that the purpose effect? Is that what you're asking? 
Well, if you know what the customization activated on the participant or the customization standard specific instruction, like in, in the studies that I mentioned, for example, where like, hey, be the black hat. And this is what a, this yeah. word, a, I, and a villain is. And as opposed to like giving you villain, mm -hmm. I'm telling you craft the villain. It's that, that is totally the Proteus effect, in my opinion. Because yeah, I think. In my opinion, too. But really, yeah. like, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, let's get into the nitty gritty of our field. Um, it's funny because this most re one of the most recent reviewers was like, you should really read the Proteus effect literature more carefully. I'm like, I wrote the meta analysis on the Proteus effect. I've read every study there is very carefully. Um, so, but we still have differences of opinions, which is fair because the original studies argued that it's a, an effect of self-perception theory. I use an avatar, I imagine, my avatar representing me as other people see me. So then I act in ways that I imagine other people would expect me to behave. That's kind of the, yeah. the behavioral confirmation. Your papers have argued, well, maybe it's not just that, it, or maybe it's not at all related to self-perception. It could just be related to priming. The avatar kind of primes these ideas of antisocial or pro-social behaviors. Um, as without you know, changing you, yeah, your own self-perception. Yeah, yeah. Without your changing your self-perception. I've tried to argue that there's a middle ground here, that the mm -hmm. avatar primes these ideas. But as some studies suggest, if I'm using the avatar while it's priming these ideas, I will at least associate those ideas with my self-concept. Because the, the avatar- relevance, yeah. Yeah. My, yeah, exactly. My avatar yeah. represents the self. So I've got these self-concept ideas. And then the avatar also has these other ideas. If I if I'm associating the two, then I'll act in ways that are consistent with the avatar's characteristics that weren't in my self-concept previously. So th there's pushback about that because we haven't really tested it, but I think that's that's the best explanation I can come to. Yeah, I think I, I think that that's fair to say. I think that we have assumed that and, and usually we have self-report or behavioral effects and, and we take that to mean that the mechanism was uh, active, but we haven't quite uh, gotten there. And, that's been a little bit of uh, my my own my own pickle, I suppose, through all of these years. But I think it's essentially the the unanswered question in terms of like identifying in which conditions is the, the self relevance or the self perception or priming mechanism operating. They're probably operating at different times, uh, more strongly than other. Like it's I never thought that it was just one thing. I think it depends on the task, it depends on the experience, it depends on how strong the associations are brought by the avatars. Like some stereotypes are definitely easier to cue than others. That's why the black versus white clothes or things like that. I, I use it in my research because they have been used in the past and I see them, they, they just operate because those mechanisms, we still see them in, in the media when we play video games or when we uh, watch Netflix and so on. Th those uh, those things are still very much in, in currency. So I think that we're still open for that. And, and that's one of the reasons why I get very excited uh, about uh, EEG technologies, for example, or any research that is capable of looking at the black box in terms of like what, what is happening uh, there. And right now I have some uh, preliminary work with uh, Richard Husky for a different uh, project with people matching uh, uh, figures for uh, using augmented reality. And we're looking at what words people employ and where they synchronize the words more and where their uh, minds using uh, uh, an entry-level EEG system are synchronized as a way of predicting performance. But I can imagine some of my future studies going in the direction of like, okay, customize a character and then looking at people's uh, EEG data to figure out, well, there's actually an actual difference as opposed to just assigning it to the character. And, and I think that so, some of you, your work with, uh, well, Saratan and collaborators had some very interesting points about how customization is uh, different because it's mindset priming. So yeah. if I'm asking you to like customize it, like it's my own perception about- That was, uh, that was ideal self self how you think other people think you ought to be an actual self exactly, exactly yeah yeah so so that that is different from like i'm giving you an avatar that looks like a bad person like it's dressed in black or it has like all of these special connotations i think that you guys make a very interesting point about how this might be different mechanisms and 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 this takes me back to the question of what we're talking about if you're getting people and you want to feel more identifiable or to have this feeling of ownership cross platforms is it better to have people to customize their characters or is it better to use photo uh, realistic less cartoony uh, uh, characters and 
I'm still a little bit on the fence there because in some of my studies, I see that when I ask participants to customize a character, they get so, so hang up on the tools and it doesn't, it kind of looks like me or it doesn't, as opposed to the balance on photorealistic, just take a photo, it's, it's you. It kind of looks like you more. So I wonder where yeah. that makes a difference, even in the customization literature. And if, like, it's, and if it's just like you, it diminishes the potential for the Proteus effect to the extent that you're not manipulating anything else. So you have to manipulate yeah. something else to make it different from you in order to change your behavior. So it, so going with this theme, because I think we, we're, we have very similar understanding of the Proteus effect and how it's not just um, self-perception theory straight up. It's its own yeah. kind of amalgamation of theories. I mean, that, the original study also included side theory and some other-, some other Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm decided in there for sure, yeah. So now imagine I, I go into the virtual room, I see this avatar that is not black or white garbed, it is just totally neutral. And in one condition, it says, uh, you know, I, I'm a hero, I really love to help people, uh, it's great to be, to do good in the world, it's great to, you know, provide kind of support to these urgent causes. The other condition says, um, you know, screw other people, you got to look out for yourself. Like I, if I can take money or, you know, goods from someone, I'm going to do it because, you know, you got to watch out for your own yeah. bottom line. And then you use the avatar. According to my understanding of the Proteus effect, which is, it's a stretch, um, you're, you, you control this avatar that just primed essentially one of these sets of schema. And now that you're controlling it, you're more likely to associate that schema with your own self-perception. So it's, it's a bit of priming, it's a bit of self-perception. And we would see, I, I think, you know, maybe more shocks in the, um, in the, or at least, I mean, you didn't actually find, no wait, you did find a difference, more shocks. There's a difference between the two of them, that the heroes uh, shock less than the, than, the, than the villains. Yeah, so maybe instead of priming it with customization, we prime it with the agent kind of giving you that same, like you said, um, understanding of the archetype. And see whether a participant would uh, take it or not. It's an interesting question because you go through some of the research on personal perception and things slices and kind of attributions at uh, uh, first acquaintanceship. I mean, with so little information, it just has that legend, that text there. It tells like, I'm a bad person or I'm a villain. Like maybe you don't need all of the accoutrements at that level. Yeah, like you need all the visuals, just need the visual description. But again, if we want to make that design more complex, of course, you can always like have it like it has, it looks evil, but it has a positive description and yeah, it's congruent, yeah. incongruent, and see whether exactly. the oh, visuals yeah, yeah. or the or the text the description that's, win. And, uh, that's super interesting. Comparing the two um, together, kind of like a a bake off. Yeah, and and we could combine it with a study where we have an implicit measure, EEG or maybe reaction time with associations of the self with the avatar. And then when, like, you're, uh, like you were saying in regard to kind of really testing whether identification in the black box makes a difference in the Proteus effect. And something to, to think about, I'm very, very interested in uh, go, going back to your grant and the work that you're doing in terms of like having an avatar that uh, translates uh, across platforms. and. Uh, I, I, I would wonder if uh, what, what would happen if we allow people to have a digital assistant, which is like you, and you create a digitalized version of you, which is essentially dealing with the menial task of the day, uh, calling or answering emails or, or like the Zoom call that has like very specific things. Like for example, some of the questions that I get uh, uh, for better or worse, you know, have an answer that is definite in terms of like it, it's in the syllabus or it's yeah. on canvas or it's information that it's retrievable under certain parameters. Your personal and, AI butler, love it. That that it's you, right? So you like your mini you, and I'd be very interested in that not only from a perspective of like work but also like memor memorializing. And this going back to science fiction, and um, I'm thinking uh, uh, in Black Mirror season one where they have this uh, kind of mannequin that takes life and it's essentially a collection of memories and voices and photos from someone that died and yeah it's like some sort of a homunculus i suppose of, of you 
And I wonder whether that's uh, uh, something that uh, that could be useful as your own AI assistance, like your mini me, I suppose. And you could train it, right? You don't have to die to make it. <laughs> you can do it while you're alive. And and uh, yeah, that's that's such an machine learning <laughs> <laughs> based that little by little is becoming you until it replaces you. I love it. <laughs> oh man, Jorge! If I, it writes a paper for me, then even better. Like, that's, that's... <laughs> <laughs> all right. This is a grant or something. <laughs> you, you have your AI. Get with my AI, and we're gonna plan out this study, um, looking at agents and controlling them, and good or bad antisocial, prosocial behaviors, um, and appearances with an implicit measure. Um, and they're going to run it for us. <laughs> yeah. I'll have my AI called your AI. Yeah. So actually, I put a note down in, in my document where I keep all my um, studies that I'm going to ping you when I when I get to the implicit uh, measure study, see if you want to be involved. Oh, I'm interested. I mean, well, uh, uh, one of the things I love about your work is uh, how imaginative it is, and I think that we connect at that level. And I think that it allows us to look at traditional social science questions and at the same time push the boundaries a little bit and uh, think about the society we live in and may end up living in, in the next few years. Absolutely. Jorge, this has been such a fun talk. Uh, I think oh, a lot of your time. Sure. Um, but I, th I like we just we just resonate on on a lot of this stuff. So it's so great to work with you and know you. Thank you, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to seeing you at NCA or ICA or whenever whenever we can. And that was our episode with Dr. Pena. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found it interesting and informative and exciting, just like I did. If you like what you heard, please download, like, subscribe. Tell all the people, right? SpartyCast on your wall. Put up a banner, just like mine. Uh, and yeah, I hope you hope you check us out again in the future. Thank you to Taylor Halcherman, our podcast producer. And take care. Good luck if you're an academic or scholar. Uh, good luck starting off the semester here. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.